Welcome to Southwinds Online. This is an exciting week at Southwinds as we begin meeting indoors again. For those who haven't heard, we can now gather indoors at 25% capacity. We'll be requiring masks and asking everyone to socially distance, and I can't wait to see everyone. As of February 14, we'll have an indoor service at 9 a.m., and we're asking everyone to go to our app or the website to get your free tickets. And then at 10.30, we'll have outdoor worship for those that that serves. At both of these times, we'll be having kids' space indoors. We're going to continue to provide online services, but starting February 21st, a week from now, we'll be live streaming our indoor worship service at 9 a.m. This means that watching the service on demand will be available shortly after that service is complete. We anticipate more changes as more of you return and we can gather in greater numbers. So we encourage you to keep checking out our social media feeds as well as updating your settings on the Southwinds Current so you can receive info from us. Along with that, we have a great need for volunteers, especially at our 9 a.m. service. So if you've served with guest service ministries before or if you'd like to start now, please email info at southwinds.org. Well, let's get our Bibles out, get them open to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 today. We're in week 4 of our series, Joyful, and we're exploring one of the most beautiful and profound passages in all the Bible. We're going to see lofty language and stirring images that, that move us to the core of our being. But we shouldn't forget that Paul is writing these beautiful words in the context of harsh realities. Again, as I've told you, Paul himself is in prison. And the people he's writing to, well, they're living in a culture where it wasn't safe to follow Jesus Christ. Their employers and neighbors wanted them to fit in, to believe what everyone else in the culture believed, or at least said they believed. But this little church of Christ followers is refusing to submit to the political correctness of their day. They they won't say, they won't do things which would require them to deny Christ. And because of that, they're facing the possibility of persecution. But what we're going to see today is that that wasn't their primary danger. There was a problem inside the church just as serious, maybe more serious, and that problem was disunity. We don't know the details. We get a hint of them later on in chapter 4, verse 2, where, where Paul pleads with two women to reconcile to one another. But in this passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Paul is going after this problem. And and it's a problem we all struggle with, even as Christ followers. Our problem is that from the moment we're born, we think it's all about me. Selfishness, self-centeredness is our reflex, our default mode, our heartbeat, our instinct from the moment we draw breath until the moment we stop breathing. And then on top of that, We live today in a culture that incessantly tells us it's all about you. Our culture says you have to look out for number one. If you don't take care of yourself, who will? You're the most important person in your world. And it just goes on and on and on. And it even happens in the church. We see it in so much supposedly biblical teaching. And in fact, many of us, well, we firmly believe it. But here's the reality. It's selfishness. And selfishness is a form of pride, and pride is the original sin that caused all the ugly brokenness we see in the world. What Paul's going to show us 
is that living a joy-filled life requires that we look out for number two, not number one. We put others above ourselves. There's an old acronym for joy that many of us learned in Sunday school, and it says we have true joy when our life is ordered like this, Jesus, others, you. Now, Paul, Paul wants us to see that the path to true joy is not seeking our own agendas and desires first. The path to true joy is putting others above ourselves and above all living for Jesus. You know, this is an amazing passage that's filled with profound truth about Jesus, but it's also filled with practical truth for our daily lives. And as you're going to see, it will teach us about unity in a time of division, humility in a time of selfish ambition, and ultimately we'll be called to look to Jesus who makes everything in life make sense. Here's the first thing you should write down on your notes. We are called to pursue the joy of unity. Pursue the joy of unity. In verses 1 and 2, Paul begins with a word about the joy of unity. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, you may have noticed these are like rhetorical statements, and they're, they're framed as if-thens. Paul is saying, has God blessed you? Has God done anything for you? And the answer has to be yes. Do you have any encouragement in your life that you'd never know because of Christ? Yes. Have you experienced any comfort from his love? Yes. Well, what about fellowship with other people because of the Spirit? Yes. Any tenderness or compassion, these things that build you up and lift you up? Yes, 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 yes. Those are the ifs. Paul's then is, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. Paul says, Paul says, complete my joy. I've been telling you that Philippians is all about joy, about this defiant joy, this joy that refuses to be determined by circumstances. And we see here that joy is intrinsically relational. Paul's saying, I need you to complete my joy. And he's telling us, he's showing us, you can't know true joy all by yourself. You need other people. One of the things that means is that God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. And you need to remember that God's gifts to you never terminate on you. If you've been comforted, then comfort others. If you've been encouraged, then encourage others. If someone has provided for you, then find a way to provide for others. That's how family takes care of one another. But it's all rooted in God. And so this leads us to this idea of unity that we see in verse 2 where Paul says we're to be like-minded, to have the same love, to be one in spirit and mind. And what's amazing here is that Paul is talking about the unity he has with the Christ followers in Philippi. He's talking about this unity even when he's isolated from them. Remember, he's in prison in Rome. They're actually hundreds of miles away. And it's almost as if he's saying you can be united even when you're not able to be together physically. Let's talk about this. Because these are divisive times in our country. You know, this right here is it's a timely word of, of unity right now. I mean, think about it. Last year, 
when everything first shut down, initially there was a kind of unity, a solidarity. We're all going through this together. But it didn't take long for disunity to erupt. Everyone had opinions. Everything got political. And we all know 2020 will go down in history as, as one of the most divisive years our nation has ever experienced. And sadly, this has happened even in the church sometimes. You know, even this Sunday as we're reopening, everybody will have opinions. And there are some of you who have been saying we should have opened a long time ago. By the way, even some people who've chosen not to attend our outdoor services. There are some of you, you don't think we should open up indoors yet. You don't think it's safe. You think we should wait. And then there's some of you, you're mad that we're requiring masks. And some of you are mad at the people who won't wear masks. I mean, everything's politicized. So every move we make gets interpreted like we're taking a side in a, a broader conversation. And I can tell you, that with regard to reopening, we're praying, we're seeking counsel, we're following guidelines from public health. And our goal, our goal as your leaders is to lay a path forward that we feel is best for the church as a whole, and then to allow people to engage with that in whatever way they deem best for them. Now, I want to be clear about what I'm saying and not saying. It's okay for you to have an opinion, and it's okay for us to have different opinions, But what I'm saying, what Paul is saying, is that we should hold our opinions inside the more important cause of pursuing unity. I'm saying that this unity Paul describes here is a relational unity. We're to be kind to one another, gracious to one another. We're to forgive one another. We're not to assume the worst. We're not to be quick to be suspicious. We're to work through conflicts and we're to avoid slander and gossip. This is about being generous in spirit. It's a unity of love and it fleshes itself out in love. Now, why? Why was that so important to Paul? Well, it was important to Paul because it was important to Jesus. It was so important to everything Jesus wanted to unleash in this world through his people, the church. Do you remember the account in John's gospel of Jesus' last hours before the cross, what he did with his disciples? He he knew it was the end, and so these were the most strategic moments of all. What did he do? Well, if you go and read, you'll see he prayed. And what did he pray for? He prayed for you and me, his future followers, And how did he pray for us? Well, he prayed that we would be unified. This is from John 17, starting in verse 20. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for those who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So why did unity matter to Jesus? First and foremost because it reflected the very nature of God. Did you see how Jesus, who was God the Son, was talking about his relationship with God the Father and and how that is a model for how we should be interacting with each other? 
You know, one of the most amazing teachings in the Bible about God is, is the idea that God is triune, that his very nature is Trinity, three persons who are one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but three persons who are the one God. And so you find Jesus referring to God the Father, but then referring to himself as God as well, God the Son. And to be the son of someone in the way Jesus was, was referring to meant to, to be of the same order as that person, to have the same qualities of that person. And I know right now maybe you're thinking, I can't wrap my mind around it. And I want to tell you that's okay because with God there's always a sense of mystery. He's God and we're not. It's unavoidable. The, the word mystery means that which is not able to be fully explained or, or comprehended. It doesn't mean it's irrational. It means it's supra-rational, supernatural. It's something that's beyond human knowledge and understanding. And that means that when it comes to God, there will always be a sense of the mysterious. And I will tell you, for me, I mean, I'm glad. That's a good thing. Because if I could understand everything about God, he wouldn't be God. That would mean my finite mind could comprehend him, which by definition would make God finite. In other words no longer God. And so the mystery surrounding God as Trinity isn't the, the headline. The headline is what it tells us about God. And here's the headline. God is community. The Father, Son, and Spirit are community. And we were created in their image. We were made to be in community with them and with each other. Authors Brent Curtis and John Eldridge talk about this in their book, The Sacred Romance. Listen to how they describe it. Think of your best moments of love or friendship or creative partnership. The best times with family or friends around the dinner table. Your richest conversations. The acts of simple kindness that sometimes seem like the only things that make life worth living. Like the shimmer of sunlight on a lake. These are reflections of the love that flows among the Trinity. We long for intimacy because we are made in the image of perfect intimacy. And not only is that longing in our hearts, but it's the very reason for our creation. The love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit couldn't be contained. It had to be shared. I mean, haven't you ever seen a, a picture watched a sunrise, caught a glimpse of something wonderful, and instantly you wanted to grab someone. You wanted to say, you got to come and see this. It's why married lovers want to increase their joy by having children, because they want to share what they have. It's no wonder the 14th century philosopher and theologian Meister Eckhart once wrote that we were created out of the laughter of the Trinity. See, that's the first and foremost reason unity matters. It's a God thing, literally. But it's also something further. I won't spend as much time here, but we're going to be coming back to this later in this series. Jesus talked about it in John 17, where we read from a few moments ago. And he said that our unity as Jesus' people, that's what captures the world's attention. That's what tells the world that Jesus is who he said he is. Our disunity, Jesus would say, denies Jesus and what he came to do. And so that means we must care deeply about unity. It's our joy and it's our message. Well, just to be clear, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not unanimity. 
Unity is oneness in love. So how do we get it? How do we keep it? Well, that's what Paul says next. He tells us that we experience the joy of unity when we choose the way of humility. Look at verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So listen to that first line. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Does this sound like it's addressed to our nation today? And I'm talking about both political parties. How about the very state we live in? You know, California, the state of Hollywood celebrities and Silicon Valley tech billionaires. I mean, our economy is fueled by selfish ambition. And then this word for vain conceit. In in Greek, it's actually two Greek words smashed together that mean empty and glory. And so the idea behind this word conceit is that something looks glorious, but there's no reality behind it. It's like status without substance. Then selfish ambition, well, this is about wanting more than others. Selfish ambition is about aligning our lives around the pursuit of things that benefit me, whether wealth or recognition or comfort or pleasure. It's about taking, not giving. Vain conceit, that's about thinking more of yourself than others. It's thinking, I'm more important, I'm in control, I'm smarter, I deserve this. And we must, as we read these words, not think that Paul is writing this to other people. Truth is, Paul addresses this to each one of us. And here's the reason why. Each one of us struggles in some way with selfish ambition in our own heart. Each one of us struggles with vain conceit. Paul's talking about pride here. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what kind of personality you have, whether it's loud or quiet, whether it's hard driving or or retiring. We all struggle with pride because we're all sinners. And pride is at the root of all sin. And so each of us needs to hear Paul say these words, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But then he goes on to say, rather, in humility value others above yourselves. Now you need to know that it was shocking for Paul to bring up humility like this in his culture. Because the Greco-Roman world did not see humility as a virtue. If you've ever read Greek philosophy, you know they talked a lot about virtues. They are always writing about truth and goodness and beauty, but never about humility. Humility was not a virtue for them. And think about it this way. In our language, the words humility and humiliation are etymologically connected. And in their minds, those words were existentially connected. Humility and humiliation were like the same things. Humility was for slaves. They lived in an honor-shame culture where status was everything, where rank and reputation were the cultural currency of the day. And so being humble was not considered a virtue, not considered a good thing for them. And yet, and yet, Paul radically calls them, and he calls us to humility because pride is at the heart of all disunity. We all know what pride is. It's like being high in yourself and down on or critical of others. So does that mean humility is like being high on others and low on yourself? And the answer is no. It's also not being high on others and high on yourself. Here's what real humility is about. It's simply putting others first 
and not thinking about yourself at all. In fact, someone has said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You know, it's interesting how humility has recently acquired kind of a cachet in our current culture. There are huge corporations like Apple that teach servant leadership. But it's also interesting that often when you dig down and you get below the surface, you see something different than what Paul's talking about. A recent bestseller on leadership from a secular point of view talks about the importance of humility. But when the author describes why humility is important, he says it's so that people will trust you more and you'll get ahead more and you'll be promoted more and you'll climb the ladder higher. And so reality, it's just selfishness cloaked in humility. C.S. Lewis once described what a truly humble person would look like. He said, do not imagine if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. True humility is simply putting God and others first. And it's exactly what Paul says in verse 4. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. I mean, can you imagine how, how different our nation would be if everyone did this? Or how different our state or even our neighborhood would be if everyone put the interests of others in front of their own? I mean, just think about commuting. People are just like, oh, you want to merge? Go ahead, whatever's best for you. Or you're shopping at the mall. You remember malls? Like there's one parking spot and two cars and someone says, you take it. I don't mind driving around longer. It would be like people would be apologizing to each other on Twitter and Facebook. I mean, can you imagine life if everyone actually obeyed this? But what if, what if the church actually obeyed this? What if we all put the interests of others before our own? I mean, how would that impact the way we talk to one another? How would that impact the way we serve here at Southwinds? How would that change the way we give? We desperately need unity right now. And unity only comes as we all choose the way of humility. But you may be asking, well, What exactly does that look like? And that's what Paul shows us next with the rest of our passage today, verses 5 through 11. He turns our attention to the example of Jesus, and he tells us that we need to learn to think like Jesus. Now, these verses are incredible. In fact, a lot of scholars think what you have in verses 5 through 11 is a hymn sung in the early church that that people actually gathered in church meetings all over the world there, and they would sing this on Sunday. Scholars call it today the, the Christ hymn. And it's almost like Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church, and he gets to this point in the letter, and he just, you know, copies and pastes this hymn right there. Now, I love I love that this is a hymn because it is so rich in theology. And it reminds us that the truest form of theology is not textbooks or graduate degrees or debates, but the worship 
of the crucified and resurrected Christ. Let's look at this hymn together. And, and don't, don't miss that it is about thinking how we think. In verse 5, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, verse 5 tells us that this is about our relationships, our, our unity as Jesus' people. And in those relationships, we are to live in humility. And we do that, Paul says, as we learn to think like Jesus, as we have the mind of Christ. And Christ's mind was humble. Verse 6 tells us of the magnitude of Jesus' humility. From eternity past, Paul says, Jesus was and is the Son of God. He is in very nature God, the second person of the Trinity. Paul tells us that instead of exalting himself, he emptied himself. He willingly walked away from glory. He gave up his throne. He turned his back on the status and privileges that he was infinitely worthy of. He stepped down when all he ever deserved was to be lifted up. Verse 7 says that Jesus made himself nothing by becoming human, taking the very nature of a servant. Now, this doesn't mean he ceased to be God. Jesus did not give up his deity. He simply gave up his status and his rights and his privileges. And this is almost too glorious to even begin to comprehend. Think about it. The creator entered creation. The author wrote himself into the story. God became a man. You see, in the incarnation, Jesus did not reduce himself. He restrained himself. He's fully God and fully man who, in humility, did not use his rightful power for his own advantage, but he used it for those he came to save. It's not been too long ago that we celebrated Christmas. And you know, often we, we tend to romanticize the Christmas story too much. But we shouldn't do that. We should always remember what it meant for Jesus to come to earth, to come to earth as a baby, a, a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, a baby who depended on a poor teenage mother for shelter and food and love. You know, I've been reminded of the vulnerability of a baby this week as Dana and I have welcomed our third grandchild into the world. Jackson Michael Nolan was born early Tuesday morning, and he's beautiful and extremely intelligent. But he's helpless. He's totally dependent, just like Jesus was. Jesus gave up everything for us. Jesus grew up, and he lived in desperate poverty in a backwater town that no one respected. He, he worked with his hands just like any man. And then when he began his ministry, think about the miracles of Jesus. He did all these incredible miracles, but he never did one for himself. He gave up his rights without giving up his essence. He used his power and authority to serve others. He did not cling to what he had in and of himself. 
You know, you can try to think of some earthly examples of humble servant. Maybe thinking of a a parent who puts the needs of their children before their own. Or maybe thinking of a boss who covers for one of their employees. When it comes to humility, nothing compares to this. The king of the universe became a servant to save us. And just, just when you think you can't get any lower than that, look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The author of life submitted himself to death. And not just any death, death on a cross. We've talked about this many times before, how crucifixion was a form of Roman execution that was designed to publicly shame the victim. It was horrifying. It was terrible. It doesn't get any lower than this. And what's incredible is that the emphasis here is not mainly on Christ's descent and Christ's suffering but on Christ's willingness to do so. He wasn't forced to do this. He, he did it all voluntarily out of love. He died for our sin. See, Jesus, he deserved none of it, and yet for our sake, he endured all of it. But of course, the descent isn't the end of the story. This is a story of descent and ascent. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Christ rose from the dead And he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So he who suffered is now exalted, and he has the name above every name. He is the Alpha and Omega, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And and these words of Paul's, well, they tell us that every tongue, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. It means that every knee will bow, whether it's in honor or in shame. And that means our response is to proclaim Christ as Lord today. You see, friends, here's the truth, the reality. Jesus is Lord whether we recognize it or not. And so to trust him as Lord, to receive his grace, well, that is the greatest thing we can do in our lives. To recognize that he died and rose and he now reigns and then to to follow him with everything that is in us, with our whole lives, that's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is Lord, I would say, is the most humble statement you could ever make. Let me say that again. Jesus is Lord is the most humble statement you could ever make. And then like a fountain, when you make that statement, a a life of humility flows out of that. So next time, Next time you want to brag or boast about something you've done or who you are, remember, Jesus is Lord and give him the glory. Next time you want to get your own way, remember, Jesus is Lord and you will seek to serve others. Next time you you want to get to acquire, remember, Jesus is Lord, and and you start looking to give in this age of upward mobility. 
See, God's word causes us to humble ourselves and to live for his glory when we see that Jesus is Lord. And then as we look to Christ, we will become more and more a people who lay down our rights, a people who use our power and our authority for the service of others. And as we follow Christ more and more, serving and loving more and more, we'll do that together more and more, and people will see and people will be drawn to Jesus. Let me give you kind of a a summary uh, about what Paul's teaching us in this passage. I'll put it like this. True unity comes through humility that focuses on Christ's glory. That's what Paul is teaching us in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Let me close with this. To really understand and to receive this, we've all got to be honest about our pride. And I'm talking about all of us here, every one of us, not just some. C.S. Lewis wrote these words as well. He said, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. Nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Are you willing to admit your pride? This is where true joy begins. This is where freedom from sin begins. This is where rich, deep relationships with others begins. This is where knowing God begins. We need to acknowledge the pride in our hearts and we need to hear the word of the Lord that says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so I call you today to confess your pride, to surrender control of your life to Christ, to look to him as the Savior, the Savior who humbled himself and was exalted for you. You see, if you, don't, if you want to be humble, you don't obsess over your own humility because humility really is a byproduct. If you want to be humble, you fix your gaze on Jesus, on all of Jesus' glory. And as you do, the pride of your heart will begin to melt away. See, our, our hope, our hope is not in our humility. Our hope is in Christ's humility. Would you join me as we pray together? Let's bow our heads wherever we are and join in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your Son and that your Son, Jesus, took on flesh, that he who is a king became a servant, that he who reigns over all washed his disciples' feet, and and then he went to the cross in our place for our sin. God, we receive your grace And we trust in you with open hands. God, we thank you that not only did Christ, your son, die for our sins and that he entered into our brokenness, but we thank you, Lord, that he rose from the grave and he has been exalted and he reigns over all. And so, Lord, we we look to you today in a time that's difficult, a time where we continue to have many questions. We look to you and we remember Christ is reigning from the throne. And so, Father, I pray that that even thinking about that, that that would increase our faith. We trust in you. We love you. We live for you. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us today. And I want to invite you to join us here at Southwinds in the week that are ahead as we begin to gather again. Uh, Wherever you are, we pray that you will have a blessed week, that the Lord will go with you and you will know his grace and his mercy and his love. I'll see you soon.